Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Lamentations, verses from chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the, the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of man. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, thank you for doing that so beautifully, Susan. Uh, what, a, what a great, um, she leads us well uh, when she reads. Uh, good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we are continuing a series this morning that we've been in the middle, you know, going through for the last year or so. We've come to a part in our story as we trace it through the Old Testament that really is a, a time of great sadness for God's people. Uh, and we'll see that in this text. And so the theme that's before us today and for the next few weeks as we continue to work our way through uh, these portions of the Scripture, much of the Scripture, uh, this book of Lamentations and some of the prophetic writings are written to a people in the middle of a time of great distress, a time of great sadness. And so the Bible has a lot to say about what it means to live with sadness. Because sadness and loss are part of the human experience, and it's no different for God's people no different for Christians. Being a Christian doesn't give you a, a get-out-of-sadness-free card. What's different is how Christians respond. And the response of Christians to times of sadness, as we're being led to contemplate here in this book that's given to us in our scriptures, is to lament. And lament is a completely unique way of expressing sadness. It's holy. And I use that word holy to describe how 
out of the ordinary and unfamiliar, the idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is this idea of lament. There's an entire book here, uh, though only five chapters long, in our scriptures entitled Lamentations. And you may never have even read it. Most Christians haven't because it's not fun, it's not happy, it's not, you know, glittery. It's quite sad and striking and depressing. Uh, And yet, it's there for us. Uh, And we have a lot to learn here. A lot to learn from this, from this book that's here in the middle of our scriptures. A lot to learn about what we are going to call lament this morning. And so I just want to jump right in so we can get uh, to the meat of what we want to talk about. And I have three questions that I want to try to answer for us this morning. And they're just these. First, I want to ask, why, why is it lament is the Bible's response to what we do with our sadness? Why is lament appropriate and right? Second question is, what is a lament? What is it? What is, the, what is in this book of lamentations, what's being modeled for us? And what, would, you know, what does the Bible call a lament that we're also to express in our own lives? And then thirdly, how does a lament come? In other words, what's the undergirding theological reality that allows us uh, to practice this, this biblical practice of a lament? So why, why lament is appropriate and right, what it is, and how it comes, those are our three points. You'll see them as the three points of the outline I've given to you. And so let's just start. Uh, at the beginning, and talk about, first, why a lament is appropriate, or maybe you would even use the word necessary. And the answer is uh, that what has happened to Israel here, that has occasioned this book of Lamentations, has also happened to us. Look at the very beginning of the, of the book, in those first verses there in chapter 1. The writer says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great, among the nations. We've been, we've been talking about this for a number of weeks, but it bears repeat, repeating. Jerusalem, uh, the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah, has been conquered by the Babylonian army, and all the people have been carried off into exile. This is circa 586 B.C. And this is what God has been warning them through the prophet Jeremiah all along would happen if they did not turn away from their sin and their idols and turn to him in repentance and faith. God is throwing them out of his land because of their sin and rebellion. And remember, the land is their home, so now they're homeless. God has thrown them out because of their sin. And it's what he's, what he's warned for centuries he was going to do. He's finally come and done it. And here Jeremiah is reflecting on this event that's happened to the people. Now, what's fascinating is Hebrews chapter 11, which we read at the beginning of our worship service this morning and other places, say that we, the church, we are strangers and exiles in the world. That's Hebrews eleven thirteen. And what that means is that this event here that occasions this book of Lamentations is but an echo of another exile that all of humanity shares in common. And if you remember when we were way back in Genesis chapter 3 last fall, in Genesis 3, the man and the woman sin by eating the forbidden fruit, and God comes to them and he throws them out of the garden lest they reach out and take hold of the tree of life and remain in their sinful condition forever. That means that every single one of us goes about life in this world as an exile. We are strangers and exiles in the world. We have been taken from our home and left to wander in a wilderness that is harsh and unfamiliar. That's what our life is. And that's the consequence of our sin. And it's the way life really feels, isn't it? We're in exile. And the overwhelming experience of an exile... And I think for most of us, if we were honest, if we could find enough grace to be really honest this morning, which is what I'm praying for, if we were really honest, we would admit this morning that the overwhelming experience of most of our lives, because we're exiles, 
is a sense of loss. Now here, here's Jeremiah looking at the once beautiful gleaming city of Jerusalem, which has now been reduced to ash and rubble, still smoking, and his heart begins to break at what he sees and what has been lost. So he says there in verse 1, how like a widow she has become, he says. And uh, a widow, which I'm getting to know because I have one living with me now, uh, a widow, you know, is a woman who knew the love and care and protection of a husband, and now he's gone and she is alone without anyone to take care of her. Widows know a painful sense of loss. There was once a home and warmth and companionship and safety, but no more. Now the house is silent. Now she has to pay the bills and fix the toilets and worry about how long the roof will hold out, and there's no one there to help her with any of those things. And Jeremiah says, the city's like a widow. There's so much that's been lost. He goes on, she was a princess and she's become a slave. Her royal robes have been traded in for rags. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. The roads at a festival time is the image here when all of the people and all of the nation would crowd the roads leading up to Jerusalem. And what they would do, I don't know if you're even aware of this, but many of the Psalms, there's a number of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent and it would be the songs that the travelers, the pilgrims who would be leaving their hometowns three times a year as they were commanded in the law to go up to Jerusalem, to worship in Jerusalem, they would sing as they went along the roads because there was such joy and expectation and hope of all that God was doing for his people and all that was to be celebrated. And here, Jeremiah says, the roads which once were full of singing... Now uh, there is no rejoicing, there's no going up to the city to celebrate, they're empty, there's no longer any singing, instead there's mourning. I mean, Jeremiah is trying to capture through all these images this overwhelming sense of loss. The Bible says that we're strangers and exiles in the world. We once walked and talked with God. We once were naked, but not ashamed. That means we, there was no internal angst, no sense of guilt or condemnation. We once had perfect communion with one another. We, no conflict, no hurt feelings, no broken relationships. We were once surrounded by beauty and glory and experienced overwhelming joy and a sense of purpose day after day, even in the most mundane of chores, but all of that is gone. We've been exiled from our home. Because of our sin. And that's the way the Bible would describe our life in the world. John Eldridge, who many of you probably have read some of his books, one of my favorites is uh, a book he wrote many years ago. He's gotten a little bit sketchy as he's gone along, in my opinion, but the, his early books are really great. And one of those is a book called Journey of Desire. He uses the analogy of a sea lion who's been lost at sea. And he, he describes this sea lion who's come to live in a dry and dusty place called the Barren Lands, far away from the place that he was made for. And sometimes on nights when the wind would shift in a certain direction, the faint smell of salt air would come to him on the breeze. But for the most part, the sea lion was forced to live out his life <clears throat> out of place, dislocated, away from his home with this overwhelming, just uh, overwhelming sense of loss. And so, of course, I get to think about these things all week long, which means I have to live with this stuff, you know, not for 35 minutes like you do on Sunday, but for seven days. And so a lot of what I started to think about this week was, 
the things, uh, the things that, where my life is characterized by this sense of loss, the things that sin has stolen from me, the heartbreaks and the pains and the sadnesses in my own life. And I would ask you the same question. What is sin stolen from you? What are the overwhelming sadnesses and pains and the things where there's real loss in your life? Are you even emotionally whole enough to be able to sit with those things? Things like this. I heard my mom's voice uh, this week for the first time in 15 years. A friend uh, gave me a recording of, um, of a graduation ceremony she did at uh, Lakeship Elementary School. And it literally was the first time I'd heard her voice in 15 years. And we all gathered around the computer and my grandmother and I cried because <laughs> uh, I miss her. She died of cancer in 99. I think of uh, birthdays that happened this week of friends where, you know, the worst thing about Facebook is it reminds you of all the people you used to be really close to, but something's happened and now you're not close to them anymore. Anybody else have that experience? It's painful for me. It's, it's like looking back at old pictures of your kids. Do you know what I mean? And thinking, oh, gosh, I wish I, I could go back to those times. And so I just, there were so many birthdays that felt like that came across my Facebook uh, feed this week, and I just thought of all of the joy that I used to experience in relationships where sin, mine and theirs, and the conglomeration of all of it has just ruined it, and I barely have the courage to whip out my phone and text happy birthday. Just how sad that makes me. And even in experiences where in the very best of relationships, there's great pain and dysfunction. Uh, and so it was an overwhelming week for me to think about these things. And that verse in Hebrews 11 is helpful to me, but I I, I want you to notice also, if you want to look there in our call to worship, it commends those who, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles. It's one thing to say, for me to say, you know, we are strangers and exiles, but what Hebrews commends as those who live by faith are those who can acknowledge this fact that indeed they were strangers and exiles in the world. And in John Eldridge's story of the sea lion, the tragedy is that the sea lion is forced to live separated from the sea for so long that he eventually settled down and busied himself and tried to forget about the sea altogether. This magnificent creature made to frolic and flop in the ocean settled for trying to make a home for himself beside a muddy puddle of water. And that is in contrast to what Hebrews 11 says, of the people of faith who are commended there for their acknowledgement of their homelessness, their refusal to settle down and resign themselves to a life that is less than what they were made for, but instead were told there, go on through life seeking a homeland, a heavenly kingdom, a better country that is theirs. And so Eldridge goes on to write in the book, something awful has happened, something terrible Something worse even than the fall of man, for in that greatest of all tragedies we merely lost paradise and with it everything that made life worth living. But what has happened since is unthinkable. We've gotten used to it. We are broken into the idea that this is just the way things are. The people who've walked in darkness have adjusted their eyes. He goes on to say that way they don't have to live with the haunting. And Eldridge is just echoing what other theologians say when they talk about how uh, and it's, in some sense, it's very C.S. Lewis-ish, that in some sense, in a mysterious way, we are haunted by Eden, that we remember the garden, the life in the garden, and that that's what makes all the loss that we experience in the world so painful. It's that remembrance that things used to not be this way. And even though we've never experienced it other than this way, there's something in our humanity, something in our collective humanity that stretches all the way back to the beginning with the first man and the first woman that we go through the world experiencing it one way but but knowing that it shouldn't be that way that there's something else that we were created for 
And acknowledging our exile means we're willing to live with this pain of remembrance without giving in to anger or despair. It means acknowledging, along with St. Augustine, who so famously said, we've been made for God and for heaven, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. Acknowledging our exile means we lament. We lament. And that's the big picture this morning. So let's talk then about, that's why lament is so appropriate, why it's so necessary, is because life is full of loss, a sense of loss. We are exiles and strangers. But let's talk about why lament is the song that every exile must sing. And before we go into the specifics that constitute lament, it will be helpful to maybe contrast by describing the way we naturally, and I would say sinfully, express our and deal with our sadness and our loss. And there are two ways we get it wrong. Okay, Two ways we get it wrong, and then we're going to bring together the right way in this idea of lament. And the two ways that we get it wrong, neither of them acknowledge our exile. And interestingly, they're both illustrated remarkably. I mean, remarkably, it is beautiful, it is gripping, it is um, heartbreaking, it's painful. But they're both illustrated so well in the recent movie, Saving Mr. Banks, if you've seen that. And the movie is the story of Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks, trying to buy the movie rights uh, to Mary Poppins from Peel Travers, who's played by Emma Thompson. And it is marvelous. It is a marvelous movie. I'm not going to give away. There's not really much to give away anyway, but it, it really is a marvelous, uh, marvelous just watching the interaction between these two people because they could not be more different. And it's the reason for their mutual antagonism toward one another because, of course, Disney is uh, gregarious and playful. His joy is infectious. Uh, everybody at, at Walt Disney World smiles and laughs because it's what you do. I mean, his goal in life is to have fun. Travers is... Um, Well, she's awful. She's rude. She's condescending. She's a control freak. And so the whole movie is the two of them bumping against one another. Disney's warm-hearted optimism in her and her cold, hard cynicism. And what comes to light as the movie goes on is that both of them, and where they finally connect is that both of them uh, both of them have, have had a terrible uh, sense of loss they're dealing with. There's been some terrible things that have happened to them. And they're both living with this desperate sense of loss. And in their pain, what they do is they've gone in opposite directions. Walt Disney dealt with his pain by becoming Walt Disney. And he spent his life dealing with his sadness by creating the happiest place on earth. Which, ask any parent of toddlers or small children, it is not <laughs> my brother-in-law, Matty, was there yesterday. I didn't even know it. I called him. Hey, what's going on? Well, just my own personal purgatory. That's, that was how he answered the phone. And I said, you must be at Disney World. And he said, that's exactly right. Right? Disney, Disney dealt with his sadness by trying to create the happiest place on earth. And, and, and I mean, it takes parents 10 minutes to realize that's a bunch of, that's a crock. Because it's not. But what comes to light as the movie goes on is that all the fun and games is really just a mask. It's not real. What is real is this pain. And then there's P.L. Travers, who is, and her pain has soured her. She's cynical. She's mean. She goes through life with a red pen in her hand, constantly correcting everybody else's mistakes. I'm sure none of you know people like that. She deals with her pain by inflicting as much pain on everybody else as she possibly can so that she's not alone on her own. 
And those are the two ways we can wrongly deal with sadness and loss. By denying it, right? By shutting down your heart and putting on a happy face. Loading up the kids and going to Disney for two hours before it's too much and you have to come home. Or, or by dwelling in it until you become hard. And so I want to give you, just, just give you an example of each of those. Just another example. Uh, an example of this denial, of the first, of the Walt Disney approach. I, a few years ago, Ashley and I went to a funeral for a girl that was in our youth group. She was in her early 20s. Uh, and cancer took her, and she left two little girls. She died horribly of cancer. It's very sad. And, uh, and we were good friends with the girl that was her best friend at the time when she died. So, of course, there was terrible grief. So we go uh, to the funeral, and it was about the strangest thing I've ever been a part of, to be honest, because um, this church, and which will remain nameless because it's not important, but... Uh, it, was, it became pretty, quick, pretty obvious, obvious pretty quickly that the, the church, we sang celebratory songs, and most of the people were exuberantly expressing themselves, and the pastor was working really hard to be positive and to talk about how faith means we refuse to be sad because she's gone to a better place. And can I just say, I mean, I, I hope, please don't, I'd like for you to not get angry at me for saying this, but I really, really grieve that, by the way, when... People are in the midst of their grief, and then they say something like, well, I know she's in a better place. Because what that is, that's just shutting down the conversation. It just shuts down the grief. Turns, it's, it, when somebody does that, it's turning their, it, they're turning their heart off because it hurts too much. And this whole, this whole, um, this whole service was like that. So there's this funeral, there was, there was no room to be sad. It was very clear that if you were a good Christian, if you were mature in your faith, then what it meant was is you needed to have enough faith to not be sad and just to put on a happy face and be okay. And, and, and there was no room to be real. It was so fake. It was so emotionally dishonest. I've ne- I very seldom do this. I did it in my younger years. I've really gotten better about doing it. But I, I was, it was so emotionally dishonest, and I was so upset that I got up and left and went out into the parking lot and cried. I didn't feel like I had the. I didn't feel like it was okay for me to do it in there. And it's just, a, I mean, this sense of denying the sadnesses of our lives and trying to put on a happy face. But then there are the examples of of dwelling and and for you know a, a less practical, tangible illustration of that. But but there's a lot of times where you might come across people in your life um, where they're they're just. You might have a friend or a person in your family or whoever it might be where there's just this. It seems like there's this simmering anger that is a part of who they are and unfortunately every now and then it kind of boils over and comes out and what happens is when you come across angry people like that uh people who who go around through life taking taking it out on other people because they hurt and what's happening is is when you when you hurt if you don't deal with it if you just dwell in it if you if you don't you know if you don't go to, to god and jesus with all of the sadness and the and the fear and the the, the, the grief, then eventually it might make you angry, and so you, you hurt, and so what you want is you want everybody else to hurt too, and so there's this anger. But what you need to understand is that this anger that comes out sometimes is will. It's the will trying to fix the problem. And so it's anger. But when you choose to lament, see what, this, what the Bible and what this book that's here is trying to help us with, when you choose to lament, what's happening is, is you refuse on the one hand to shut down and deny the problem, but also, on the other hand, you refuse to put your will to work to fix the problem. So that's what's unique. That's what's really holy about what the Scripture's calling us to here, is that in a lament, you, you, you refuse 
to shut down and deny the problem, but you also refuse just to put your will to work to fix the problem. A lament is emotionally honest. It's honest about the pain. It doesn't try to get away from the pain. Lament lives in the pain. It grieves it. It chooses sadness over both emotional dishonesty and anger, both denying and dwelling, right? And, and because both of those, both denying and dwelling in our pain over the things that have been lost, over the sadnesses that we've experienced, the ways that people have hurt us, both of those are energized by unbelief. But lament is energized by faith. Denying and dwelling are both wrong and unhealthy. They're sinful. But the person who's able to lament is the person who's whole. And let me show you this. Let me show you this from the text. Because you see, a lament is first, I've said, emotionally honest. And that's really the most striking part of Lamentations. Because Jeremiah is brutally honest. Right? It's really uncomfortable. All of chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, going all the way down to verse 12. Okay, But, if, but especially, I'm going to skip down to verses 10 through 12 for the sake of time. He says, he, and who's the he here? This is important. Who's the he? God. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. Now that is not the kind of God talk you usually hear in the church. Right? That's a far cry from how we usually talk, because it's so raw, it's so honest, it's not dressed up in religious verbiage. Jeremiah is not saying the right thing, he's saying the real thing. Did you get that? He's not saying the right thing, he's saying the real thing, he's saying what's on his heart. Jeremiah's aim is not good theology, it's emotional honesty, and it reminds me of Naomi. In the story of Ruth, returning home to Bethlehem from Moab after Uh, The famine that was there and the death of her husband and the death of both of her sons. She's coming into the city and the women of the city begin to say, is this Naomi? And they begin to celebrate her return. And in her cynicism and her anger, she snaps at them and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She shuts down the celebration and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt Very bitterly with me, I went away, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Now listen, that's questionable theology for some of us. Right, Naomi says, my life is a mess. I've lost everything. God, it's your fault. You've done this to me. Now is it okay to talk to God like that? It must be. Because the Bible here, and particularly in the Psalms, is discipling us on how to pray in the midst of pain. And if you've ever seen Forrest Gump, and you remember the scene where Lieutenant Dan is strapped himself to the mast in the middle of the storm, and he's taking on God and yelling at God, it's kind of like that. But here's the thing. Jeremiah is completely honest with God about how, uh, how he's feeling. But do you notice he doesn't stop praying either. He doesn't quit. He doesn't quit on God. He doesn't allow his pain to turn him into a cynic. He, there remains a, a quiet, steady commitment to obedience and worship. And that's the unique structure of a, of a lament. See, in lament, you engage your heart and you let go of your will. You feel everything, 
and control nothing. And it's the exact opposite of the way we usually live our lives or how we aim to live our lives. That's why I said at the beginning, it's a part of a holy life. It's a holy way to deal with sadness. You engage your heart. You let go of your will. You feel everything and you control nothing. But what most of us are doing is the opposite. We let go of our hearts. We engage our will. We feel nothing. We try to control everything. We shut down our hearts. We go to work. Whereas in lament, you open the heart. You let God work. So lastly, then, uh, how does lament come? How does a lament come then? That's the last thing we've got to deal with from this, from, this, um, from this book that we have here in the scriptures. And what we find in Lamentations is that Jeremiah's lament is rooted in what he knows about God. Now, there's a transition that happens in verse 23, or excuse me, verse 21 of chapter 3, if you see there in the scriptures that have been printed for you. To this point, Jeremiah has been laying out his lament. He's been complaining. I mean, he really, it's just this long complaint, this, this charged, overcharged emotional honesty he has. And then beginning in verse, thir- verse 21, something starts to change in him. He says there, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And then he goes into this beautiful, one of the most beautiful probably, you know, two or three verses in all of the Bible. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness of God. And this is the movement of faith. See, Jeremiah doesn't view God through the lens of his circumstances. He views his circumstances through the lens of his theology. And that's the difference. That's the difference. A few years ago, I bought Ashley a really nice camera for her birthday and Mother's Day and our anniversary and about everything for three years all at once. Right? Um, And um, because our kids were getting older and we realized our little podunk cameras weren't doing it anymore. And and this camera was marvelous. It came with all these different lenses. And so, of course, you can change the lens depending upon what what you're trying to do, right, with the picture you want to take. It's the same shot. It's the same shot, but the different lens makes the shot look different, right? So you can buy lenses that add color or that allow, you know, light to filter in in certain ways. You can zoom in. You can zoom out. All of these things. The way you see the shot uh, depends on which lens you use. Jeremiah's lens is not his circumstances. His pain and his loss don't cause him to view God a certain way. They don't color, his pain and his loss don't color his theology. It's the other way around. God is Jeremiah's lens, and what he knows about God, his theology colors his circumstances. So let's look at the theology of Lamentations as it gives us here. The first thing we see if you go all the way down to the bottom, because it really is what's laid over everything else that the book has to say, is this question. It's the way the book ends, right there at the very end, the last two verses. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The book ends with this question, because it's the question. It's the question for you, whether you're here and you're a Christian or whether you're here and you're not a Christian. It's the, the question of every human heart. You finish reading Lamentations, and it lingers in the air because the question lingers throughout all the days of our lives. And what you see, it's fascinating. There's this hint of hope. He begins to say, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. And then it is immediately, any of this glimmer of hope that he has is immediately swallowed up by the question, Is God mad at me? And there's uncertainty. There's doubt. He, he, he's not sure. And it's what keeps us like P.L. Travers or Walt Disney instead of like Jeremiah lamenting. Every single one of us walks around with this question in our hearts. And as long as it goes unanswered, we won't be whole. And so if you don't have an answer to the question, you'll react to pain and loss by shutting down your heart. 
Or if you don't have an answer, you'll react to pain and loss by engaging your will or your anger toward a solution. And both of those are unbelief because they're energized, they're energized by unbelief. Okay? For example, the temptation when you're hurting is to aim your will or your anger at a person, the person who hurt you maybe or whoever it might be, or at a problem, but not at God himself. And the goal of this way of living is to avoid having to deal with God. But did you notice Jeremiah doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar is a bear lying in wait for me. He's torn me to pieces. No, he looks at God and he says, you, you, not you, you are the bear. You are the lion and you, it's you that's torn me to pieces. He directs all of his emotion toward God because it's God who has done these things, granted through Nebuchadnezzar, but it's God that Jeremiah has to deal with. One of the mistakes that we make is we get angry at people about the things that happen to us and don't realize that underneath who we're really angry at is God. And we never deal with it. And so it's, it's unbelief. Because can God really handle that? Can I just tell you something? God's a big boy. He can handle it. Right? But it's, but it's not wanting to deal with him. It's wanting to deal on a horizontal level, not wanting to deal with the things in our lives on a vertical level. And so it really is unbelief. And the way to walk the road of lament instead of trying to feel nothing or trying to control everything is the theology that Jeremiah stumbles upon in the middle of his lament in verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Hesed love, he says. Love, it means God loves on the basis of his commitments and not on the basis of his feelings. That his love for us is not dependent upon our response, good or bad. It's one-way love. But unlike you and I, who in our very best moments might be able to pull off Hesed love, but only for a moment... And the demand becomes too much and we get weary quickly. God never tires of showing Hesed love. The steadfast Hesed love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Every morning when the sun comes up and you open your eyes, mercy greets you. Every day it's new, Jeremiah says. That means it, it, that, that you, don't, you don't drain. You didn't drain. Do you know this? You didn't drain the stores of his mercy the day before. Today has no reference to yesterday or last week or ten years ago in the mind of God. God is not weary of showing you mercy. He's not quit on you in that first moment when you open your eyes at the beginning of the day. He is there with mercy. With as much energy as a three-year-old boy is able to fly out of the bed with in the morning, parents. God stands at the beginning of every day, humming with energy to do good to you, to show mercy to you. And he is faithful. Which means he'll always keep his promises. Now that's the lens. All of that is the lens through which Jeremiah looks at his circumstances. And it's what sustains his lament. Jeremiah doesn't shut down his heart. He says, the Lord is my portion. Verse 24, chapter 3. Therefore I will hope in him. It's very effective language. Jeremiah's joy and hope are found in the Lord. He's feeling everything, but he doesn't engage his will either. He says in the next verse, which isn't printed, verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So he's not trying to control his life. He's quietly, patiently, humbly waiting for God to work his purposes. He's not panicked. He's not flying off the handle at the people in his life. He's dealing with God now. And what he knows about God has put him in this posture of waiting. And yet... The lament still ends with the question, doesn't it? Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain angry. Is God angry? Is God mad? And here's why I have good news for us this morning. We have an advantage over Jeremiah here. Jeremiah didn't know enough about God's steadfast love 
and his mercy and his faithfulness to give a definitive answer to this question, but we do. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, of which I am a proclaimer this morning, we have the unassailable proof of God's love and faithfulness to us. Jesus came into the world because of God's love, John three sixteen. Jesus came to show us God's love and the way that he loved the people he came in contact with. Jesus' Jesus's work wins God's love for us. He goes to the cross to die as a penalty for our sins and God's wrath is poured out upon him and he has extinguished it so that now the Father looks at us and says, through the Apostle Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit into the world, into our hearts, to make his love real in our hearts. All of this is the gospel. And so now when times get hard, when things get rough, when you're forced to deal with sadnesses that are at times maybe unbearable, you may not know what God's doing, but you can know what he's not doing. He's not quit on you. He's not without mercy in the midst of that. He's not changed his mind about you. That's what the verses in our assurance of pardon point us to whatever painful thing you're going through whatever sadness whatever whatever you know whatever grieving you've been forced to live with it can't separate you from God's love in other words you can't connect your experience and and draw the assumption that because this is happening in my life it must mean God does not love me there's something about the gospel that can buoy your heart up that in the midst of incredible pain and sadness you're no less sure of God's love for you if as if everything was going okay All the joys and all the sadnesses in our lives come from the same source, God's steadfast love and mercy. And so in the gospel, we have such a strong affirmation of God's love for us that when his love for you in Jesus Christ becomes a spiritual reality in in your heart, when the truth of it finds its way into the deep places of your soul, then you won't even ask the question anymore. You won't have to walk around wondering, is God angry with me? You'll have the answer. And when your heart has the answer, Because of the gospel, to that question to draw from, you'll be whole. You'll start feeling everything more deeply. Your life and your relationships will be characterized by emotional honesty. You won't be afraid to raise your fist and complain or to sit quietly and weep, but you'll you'll be less angry and less willful too. You'll stop trying to control your life and the people in your life to protect yourself. Instead of a shut-down heart and a ramped-up will, there will be a beautiful heartfelt, faith-filled lament, because lament is the song of exiles. It's a sad song, full of longing and hope, but a song that every one of us must learn to sing. And so, I would close uh, with the words of an old hymn, uh, entitled, Often Sorrow, Often Woe, and it goes like this, Often Sorrow, Often Woe, Onward Christian, Onward Go, Fight the Fight, Maintain the Strife, Strengthened with the Bread of Life. Let not sorrow dim your eye, Soon shall every tear be dry. Let not fears your course impede. Great your strength if great your need. Onward then in battle move. More than conquerors ye shall prove. Though opposed by many a foe. Christian soldiers, onward go. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is new to us and we confess that. Uh, that the idea that everything, uh, that, that, that everything should not be glittery and... Uh, that even if it's not okay, that what, what, what maturity, spiritual maturity and spiritual growth would, would require of us is that we, we put on a happy face and we make it okay. That's new. Uh, the idea that we can be this emotionally honest is new because we've, we've bought into lies about you. 
or we've just ignored you and we've not realized that, that the, the, the hard thing in our hearts, what our hearts don't want to do is to engage with you and to have to deal with you. And so we pray, Father, that this morning as we continue to worship and sing, that you would train us in this, um, this pattern of lament. And that even now as we sing these songs, which are hopeful songs, which are songs that call out of us faith, that for some of us we would find happening in us exactly what happened here to Jeremiah in Lamentations, that in the middle of his complaining and his grieving, he said, but this I call to mind and yet I have hope. And then out of him burst a song of praise. But for some of us, because we're just not there, I pray you give us the freedom Even in these moments, as we sing, to be emotionally honest, and if if our hearts are sad, then I pray you give us grace that we would be sad. And if we can't form the words on our lips, that we would sit and we would contemplate and we beg you, please, Father, work in my heart because I I want to sing, but I can. And so please come and put a song. And so I pray for drooping hearts that you would come by your grace now and put a song in them. If it not be today that they sing, that they would sing soon. And we thank you for the truth of the scripture, Father, that soon you will come and wipe away every tear. But until then, we go on weeping. And we go out weeping. And you send us out weeping. But the promise of your scripture remains that those who go out weeping will sow and reap in joy. That's our hope. Make it so, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we might be a people that honor and glorify you in our city. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the songs of, lament, of, of excuse me, the Psalms of Ascent that I mentioned earlier is Psalm 126. And here's what it says. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our, mouths was, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, saying among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And then comes the prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like the streams of the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with them. So wherever it is that God has sent you out to sow in tears, you've had to leave family and friends for the sake of what God's called you to, you've been forced to deal with some kind of sadness in your life, wherever it is that he has sent, he has sent you to sow in tears, the promise is, is that if you go sowing in tears, that you will come home reaping in joy. And what girds that promise is exactly what we do in the benediction, that over our lives... The words of Lamentations 3 are true, that indeed the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That in Christ Jesus, God has confirmed his commitment to be faithful to all that he said he will do for us. And that is the promise of this benediction. So receive it this morning, and then go and sow in tears, that you might come reaping in joy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.